Hi, this is Dominic Preziosi, editor of Commonweal. Today, we're here with a special year-end episode when we take a listen to some of our favorite conversations from the Commonweal podcast. So I'm here with Griffin Olenek, who is our podcast producer and an assistant editor here at Commonweal. And Griffin, we have four conversations today that we're going to take some highlights from and ask listeners to take a listen to and enjoy again. So maybe you could just talk about who we've got lined up. Sure. So we've got four segments today from our conversations with Phil Cly, Rita Farone, Alice McDermott, and Susanna Heschel, daughter of the late Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel. Okay. And so we're going to take a listen to which one first? First, we're going to listen to... Phil Kly's conversation with Commonweal senior editor Matt Boudway. And we put that episode together right after the United States withdrawal from Afghanistan in August. And Phil and Matt spoke about a new book from Yale historian and legal scholar Sam Moyne entitled Humane, How the United States Abandoned Peace and Reinvented War. Phil Kly is a veteran himself, and he reviewed Moyne's book for the magazine. But on the podcast, he goes into a broader discussion about the deceptions of modern warfare, where killing often takes place remotely via drones. Okay, Griffin, thanks for setting that up. Sure. It's not that Moyne is opposed to humanitarian codes of war, right? I mean, in a sort of interesting way, a lot of the debate around this book that has sprung up seems to mistake him for thinking that that he thinks we should let the gloves off and adopt the, the Sherman approach, which is, you know, war is hell. There's no no point in trying to make it less cruel. And the worse it is, the sooner it'll be over, right? That's not his argument, right? Though that was an argument that he, that many people in the 19th century, both militarists uh, and pacifists alike made. But rather, he's, he, he wants to draw our attention to the fact that once war happens, right, so much horror is allowed by war, right? And once war happens, continually militaries have done whatever they wanted, right? And found justifications for it. And there's unimaginable civilian strife, civilian casualties, horrors visited upon soldiers and, and, and civilians alike that are permissible within war. And so I think what he's what he wants us to do is to consider the weight on which we put such things because the vibrancy that he sees in the anti-war movements in the 19th and early 20th centuries and the actual sort of achievements of them. And he notes some of the areas where they helped avert war. He feels as though the current age of humane war has has successfully sapped that vitality, undercut real efforts to combat war, and furthermore has allowed us to elide thinking about what precisely is happening during war and what the moral problem with it is because we convince ourselves that if we're humane enough, if our targeting is precise enough, and of course the targeting is never as precise as we pretend that it is, then we can wage a kind of perpetual conflict with consciences clear. And he doesn't think that we can. He writes, much greater suffering was visited on more people through illegal war than illegal war crimes, in part because so much is legal once war starts. And uh, to bring it up, to, well, to more recent years, you point out that there were 10 times as many drone strikes under Obama as under his predecessor, Bush. I think that would still surprise a lot of Americans to hear that because they think of Bush as the, as the belligerent president and Obama as the more moderate president who had committed to a less idealistic, but also less aggressive 
foreign policy. His account of the Obama administration and the sort of legal wranglings within the administration is fascinating and was revealing to me because I had had this notion of Obama as coming in. He's the darling of the anti-war movement because he had opposed the Iraq war. But he was sympathetic to the you know, war in Afghanistan. He launches a surge of troops, but he withdraws troops from Iraq. And then during the rise of ISIS, he expands presidential power in terms of war making by asserting that ISIS falls under the 2001 authorization for the use of military force. And so he can wage war on ISIS without having to, to go to Congress. And in fact, he begins sending troops into Iraq while claiming that he's not sending troops into combat and while claiming still that he had ended the war. I actually once heard Susan Rice in 2015 while we were very deeply engaged with troops on the ground in the fight against ISIS claim to a room full of active duty military and about a dozen severely injured troops that one of the administration's proudest accomplishments was ending the war in Iraq and Afghanistan, right? And somebody in the audience snorted in laughter. What Moyne points out is that even from the very beginning of the Obama presidency, as, far, as early as, as 2009, some of the folks on his legal team are arguing that the global war on terror necessitates a, a fairly unrestrained executive and a deterritorialized war. What does that mean? It means that from the very beginning of his presidency, Obama is advancing legal arguments that will lead to the idea that Obama can strike anyone he deems a threat, right? And the Obama administration, you know, normally you're supposed to only be able to strike somebody if they are an imminent threat. Well, Obama's lawyers start arguing uh, that for the existence of things like uh, elongated imminence, right, which is an interesting philosophical concept to let alone a legal one that this war can happen anywhere. So, you, you know, it's not restricted to particular battlefields and that associated forces of the Taliban. So the initial authorization for the president to fight had been intended for the president to fight the Taliban uh, and al-Qaeda and associated forces, basically the people who, who struck us. But over time, associated forces grew on to mean almost anything, inc including groups that hadn't even existed at the time, including groups with only very tenuous connections to al-Qaeda, who there's no real reason to think that they pose any kind of threat to America, right? Certainly at the present moment. And so that process happens very early on in the Obama presidency. But what is interesting that Moyne points out and that sort of very much bolsters his argument is the Bush administration had expanded presidential war making, right? It asserted the president's ability to both do things that violated humanitarian law, right, to torture and such, but it also asserted broader presidential scope in terms of war making. In the early Obama administration, he was clawing, he was pulling back from the, the, some of the violations of humanitarian law, but was actually furthering and further entrenching these ideas about a kind of unrestrained ability to make war, to kill people around the globe, right? And he's being celebrated as having ended the worst excesses of the Bush administration. Well, for Moyne, it's not that he supports the moral abomination that was America torturing people, right? It's that one of the worst excesses of the Bush administration was unrestrained war making, right? And the consequences of that we can see around the world.
so, Griffin, next we have Rita Ferrone, who is well-known to Commonweal readers and probably podcast listeners. Why don't you talk a little bit about what we talked with Rita about? Sure. So in mid-July, Pope Francis promulgated the motu proprio Tradiciones Custodes, which abrogated an earlier permission, which had been granted by John Paul II and ratified by Benedict XVI, that permitted the celebration of the extraordinary or tridentine form of the Mass, otherwise known as the Latin Mass. That kicked off a wave of outrage among conservatives, especially in the U.S., but it was in fact welcomed by a vast majority of Catholics worldwide. Rita Ferrone, an expert on liturgy herself, celebrates it as a great day for the legacy of the Second Vatican Council. And she joined us, in fact, you, Dominic, to talk about not only the, the motu proprio, but also about the Catholic tradition and how it evolves. Yeah, it's a conversation I remember well, so let's take a listen. In, in your column, you write an apparent reference to those who strongly support use of the older rites that Tradition is not the preservation of old things. It's a vital reality guided by the Holy Spirit working through the church and its leadership. So can you talk a little bit more about tradition in this way, especially that key phrase, vital reality and the guidance of the Holy Spirit? Well, I want to say, first of all, that I actually was thinking of that as a criticism of everybody, not just those who favor the older rights, because some people who favor the new rights have an antipathy to older things, and that's not a good idea either. But here's the point. There's a saying that's attributed to Picasso. I'm not sure if he actually originated it, but my mentor in liturgical studies, Aidan Cavanaugh, used to say it, and it's that tradition is not wearing your grandfather's hat. It's having a baby. So tradition, getting the faith from one generation to the next, is a kind of life process, an organic thing. And it's a lot of work, but it's not just our work. It's the work of grace, the activity of the Holy Spirit. And that needs to be discerned. And within our church's body, the charism of authority or leadership, if you will, in the church authenticates that change and helps us to see where we're going and how genuine tradition doesn't always stay the same, but it's born in new generations in ways that will lead us to what is essential from the past and provide that bridge. So consider this. The older rites do not allow women in the sanctuary because at one time it was considered more holy if women stayed out of the sanctuary. They were not considered holy enough. They were profane, and the men, and especially the clergy, that was the sacred precincts. So women had to be kept out. Now, over the course of time, our understanding of the role of women has evolved quite a bit since then. Obviously, we know that. And also, our sense of, again, going back to the early centuries of the church's life, our sense of baptism as an important way to decide what's holy, right, is something that is equally conferred on women and men. So how do we let the tradition come into the future with awareness of how this has changed and working with that to bring out what is good and true and honorable and holy for our time? And that did include, for the reform, having women be allowed to be in the sanctuary and to undertake ministries that they had been kept out of. It wasn't until Pope Francis—this is a long process—it wasn't until Pope Francis allowed women to have their feet washed on Holy Thursday or to be instituted as lectors and as acolytes. They had only been doing it informally before then. But this is tradition. 
you know, tradition is seeing how the past transfers into the future in a fruitful way. Because if you kept on doing what you did in the past, it wouldn't be fruitful in the future. I could throw out other examples, but here are just a couple. Late antiquity was a bathing culture. They had aqueducts. They had fresh water. There was all kinds of opportunities to have pools of water and people bathing together. And baptism by immersion was not a hard thing to do. You know, by the later Middle Ages, when those aqueducts had crumbled, and by the early modern period, you didn't have fresh water. People didn't take baths for for years. Hygiene was a different thing. So baptism changed from having a lot of water and people being immersed in it to having a little bit of water and it being poured. Well, you know, baptism is still water, but it had to change. So what is tradition? It's not just keeping around old things. It's finding the heart of what is important. And the central signs and symbols have remained as sacred, potent realities. And they're there in the reform. And you can find them. But if you're focusing on the externals, you're not maybe going to see the things that are more important. The water, the forgiveness, the Eucharist as bread and wine, and so on and so forth. But the early 20th century was a time of the end of empires. The, all the empires were collapsing at the beginning of the 20th century. And there was also the collapse of colonialism and the rise of the self-determination of peoples. And so when we got to the point of Vatican II, the church really faced a moment of saying, what kind of a church are we going to be? We had internalized notions of what is grand and beautiful and honorable and good out of an imperial mindset, which had been so much a part of the world that people lived in. So what kind of a church are we going to be? And that is going to influence how we celebrate liturgy. So you can't just take a Kappa Magna out of the closet and expect it to recreate an imperial situation. However, you can cause dissonance with the gospel message by having it be more important to have the trappings of an imperial court ceremonial than to have something which reminds people of the Last Supper of Jesus, of the intimate connection of those who gathered with him as friends. So, Griffin, next we have another guest familiar to Commonweal readers and probably familiar to quite a lot of other people, Alice McDermott, the novelist. That's right. So this year, Alice McDermott published a book of essays on the art of fiction, and she sat down with our managing editor, Katie Daniels, to talk about it. What's interesting to me is that we tend to think of writing as a linear process where an author generates an idea, writes a draft, revises it, and then it gets published. But that's not how creativity works, according to Alice McDermott. And the act of writing is more akin to living in the dark. She tells us about what it's like to live in that darkness, to create in darkness. And she also talks about how she became a writer. Great. Thank you. Let's take a listen. You were visiting a third grade class and... You told them that to be a writer was to have homework due for the rest of your life. And one of them asked you, well, what about after you finish a book? And you told them, you're never finished, kid. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Which, you know, (laughs) just picture the reaction. You've tied this into a line from Henry James, who wrote that we work in the dark, we do what we can, we give what we have, 
Our doubt is our passion and our passion is our task and all the rest is the madness of art. So what advice would you offer other writers who are perhaps in the dark? (laughs) Well, that's where we work. (laughs) I don't want to speak too much out of the academic world or sound in the least elitist about this profession because I'm amazed every day that someone such as myself got to enter it. But there is this, we can call it result of natural selection or a gift from whatever creative intelligence we we are willing to acknowledge. There are artists among us. We're not all artists. There are artists among us. And those who are artists are driven to paint, to compose, to tell stories to work with language in whatever way they do. And that's wonderful. But it's also, it's a life sentence for those who are are stuck with it. You know, every artist doesn't have a happy Hollywood ending in his or her life. But it's that impulse that this is the way, not only is this the way that I make sense of my own existence in the world, but this is the way I am compelled to live, to offer whatever sense I come up with to my fellow human beings. So there is that sense of uh, it being a constant struggle, not to make it too dramatic. There's sacrifice involved, but there's also great benefits involved in pursuing a creative art. Most of us write our first stories or paint our first pictures as adults or compose our first music compositions or however you want to think about it, begin our arranging (laughs) of the world without anyone asking us to do it, without anyone saying the world is waiting for you. Something that has formed us makes us say, we have this impulse, this must be done. I've, one of the little bits of advice that, that I've included in the essays is the best piece of advice to a young writer is if you can do anything else, do it. And the most revelatory answer is, yeah, but I can't. I must do this. So yes, that means, all right, you've got homework due for the rest of your life and you're working in the dark for the rest of your life, doing what you can. It's a kind of madness, but you can't do anything else and wouldn't want to. Did you have a sense of when you knew that writing was, for lack of a better word, your your particular sentence? (laughs) I do. It's a story I've told many times, but that that doesn't make it any less true. (laughs) I was a kid who always wrote. Lots of kids do. Doesn't mean they're going to be novelists. It's a way of making sense of the world. I have two older brothers who talked a lot and a father who pontificated at the dining room table. And I didn't have much chance to say anything. So writing was a way of remaking the world and getting my sentences completed and my thoughts down. And I, so I wrote a lot and it wasn't until I was in college and I didn't know what major I wanted. I just, I went to Oswego State, way upstate New York, because it was the number three party school that year. And and I had a region scholarship, so I had to go to a state school. And I took a class that was called The Nature of Nonfiction, because I knew I liked to write. And the first assignment was to write an uh, autobiographical essay. I talk about this a little bit in the book. And I went and I made up a story. 
about two girls going in. One of them is having an abortion, underage girls. None of it ever happened. It wasn't nonfiction. <laughs> I made up the whole story. I made up the characters. I had never done that. I didn't know anybody who did that. And I brought this little st- essay, I called it, in. And the professor, a wonderful retired Air Force colonel and journalist who was teaching this class, read my essay out loud and had it on the overhead projector and yelled at me about my terrible use of commas. And then afterwards said, McDermott, I want to talk to you after class. And I thought he was going to say, you can't make stuff up. This is called the nature of nonfiction. And what he said was, I got bad news for you, kid. You're a writer and you'll never shake it. And it was a very, I mean, it was a very precise moment for me because he had done what the best teachers do. He told me what I already knew, but I probably wouldn't have known if he hadn't told me. And I knew at that moment there was no going back. Yeah, he was right. Okay, Griffin, so our last segment is with Susanna Heschel, who you actually got to speak with. That's right. Susanna Heschel is a professor of religious studies at Dartmouth. She's also the daughter of the late rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, and she's sort of the curator of his legacy today. The occasion for our conversation was a new documentary that came out about her father earlier this spring. She spoke to us not just about her father's spirituality, which was heavily influenced by Hasidic Judaism, but also how for Heschel, authentic religious belief always issues in political and ethical commitments. Hey, great. Let's take a listen. For my father, our private piety can't, cannot be disconnected from our social engagement, whether it's with family, community, or the larger world around us. And so he said, to pray and be silent on Vietnam is heresy. It's impossible. It would be blasphemy, he said. It's blasphemy. How can you pray to God, who has created human beings, who are being bombed from the skies with napalm dropping on them? It's not possible. What do you think? If someone needs a, an analogy, would you say, can you uh, talk to me and say, uh, yeah, that you're my best friend, and then say something terrible about my children? Of course not. Any human being knows that. So there's an obligation that comes with believing in God. If I say I believe in God, what are you doing about it? What do you think God wants from you? And for my father, we always turn things upside down. It's not, do I believe in God? For him, the question is, why should God continue to have faith in us, given the way we behave, how we treat one another? That's the issue. So many of the issues that concern my father while he was alive are still with us to this day. It's not as if there are suddenly new issues. Poverty is one. Hunger, racism, the violence committed by our government in our name, in this country and elsewhere. Cruelty, human cruelty. The indifference to people's suffering. Never to be indifferent to other people's suffering. That was my father's message. I think he felt that too often we're denying our own humanity, what we are capable of as human beings, what we're capable of becoming. And he said, some are guilty, but all are responsible. We're all responsible. Well, we shy away from responsibility. We don't want to see it. 
but we want to blame someone else. It's not our fault. It's their fault, or they started it. It doesn't matter. That's over and over again, our unwillingness to accept responsibility. I think often it's also a fear of a vulnerability, of recognizing when we see injustice toward others, that it is in fact an injustice to us as well. My father was a person who had a tremendous ability to feel for other human beings. He was sleepless over Vietnam. He was so upset. And he also was completely sympathetic and empathic and loving and attentive to me when I came to him with some of my problems with friends at school or homework or who knows what. Whatever small thing, I hated having to wear glasses. And he was so warm and understanding and kind. And he never said to me, oh, well, you know, no. He always felt with me. He felt so sorry. And I knew it. I could feel that he felt with me and that he cared. So his ability to feel was on the simplest level with his own little girl and on the bigger level with Vietnam. What do you think he might say about the connection between vulnerability and courage? The root of my father's teachings about religiosity, the root of it is classical Hasidic teaching. And so in classical Hasidic teaching, everything you do can be a moment of feeling the presence of God in the most mundane thing. It doesn't matter. The question is, Do I infuse this act with piety, with religiosity, with a sense of refinement? How do I behave? How do I treat another person when I'm buying something in the grocery store? And the other person's in a bad mood. And I used to see my father somehow turn that person's bad mood into a smile. He cared about that. He cared about the small interactions with people. He was always gracious and kind. So in Hasidic understanding, My father talks about it as a mitzvah, doing a mitzvah is a prayer in the form of a deed. So when I do something, can I make it a kind of prayer as an action? And so my father came back from Selma and he said, I felt my legs were praying. He said, I felt something holy in that march. I felt reminded of what it was like to walk with Hasidic Rebbe's in Europe. That was extraordinary. So the ability to turn a moment like a march for civil rights into a prayer, into a holy moment, what does it take to do that? And I think the vulnerability is there because it means opening my heart, being very present in the moment, not just saying, This is on a checklist, obviously, but also feeling with others. My father felt with Dr. King the presence of a great spirit, of a kindred spirit. Didn't matter that they came from totally different backgrounds. It didn't matter. He felt holiness in that march. Now, how do you feel holiness? What does it take to experience the holy? And so my father writes about that in his books, and Man is Not Alone and God in Search of Man, to cultivate 
aspects of our own humanity, the ability to experience wonder and awe and glory. How do we experience radical amazement? What does it take? How often does that happen in our daily lives? What can I do so that my daily lives can also have a sense of wonder and awe? We hope you've enjoyed this special episode of the Common Wheel Podcast. And of course, we hope you've enjoyed all of the podcasts that we've brought you in 2021. We'll be back in mid-January with new episodes. Until then, from all of us here at the Common Wheel Podcast, Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. This is Dominic Preziosi. The Common Wheel Podcast is produced by Assistant Editor Griffin Olenek and the Commonwealth staff in partnership with Sandberg Media. Wally Boudway composed the music and David Dalt did the editing. For the Commonweal Podcast, this is Dominic Preziosi.